Section 12. The Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. Section 12. Victor Cherboulier. 1829. In 1863, the Revue des Deux Mondes offered its readers a novel by a young author very slightly known to Parisian literateurs. But everybody read him with interest, whether cordially approving or not. The story was not evolutionary, had no definite moral purpose. Perhaps the public were glad to temporarily lay aside their instruments for scientific dissection of literary art. For Le Comte Castilla, a lively tale of romantic adventure, was the most popular story that had been published by the Revue des Dumont. Naturally, the gratified editors accepted the author as a regular contributor, which he has been ever since. He had been introduced to them by Georges Sand, who, pleased with an earlier work of his, wrote him appreciatively and did him this kind turn. This earlier work, En Cheval de Phidias, a horse by Phidias, cordially praised by Saint-Beuve, was a capable dissertation upon archaeology and art, strung on a thread of narrative. The young author, Victor Cherboulier Genevese, of French descent, was about thirty-four when Le Comte Costia appeared. A critic, in discussing him, speaks almost enviously of the liberalizing influences experienced in cosmopolitan little Switzerland. Cherboulier's advantages have been great. His father was a professor in the university, and of his parents it has been pleasantly said that from his father he learned all he ought to know, from his mother all he ought to be. He was graduated from the University of Geneva, and later studied history and philosophy at Paris, Bonn, and Berlin. For a time he taught at Geneva, then he married, and with his wife travelled extensively in the East, where he collected abundant material for his trained powers of observation and his love of social and artistic questions. He has been a member of the Academy since 1881, and now lives in Paris, a perennial novel-writer, distinguished also for the clever sketches on modern French politics, which appear regularly in the Revue des Deux Mondes, signed Georges Valbert. But his best and most abundant work has been in fiction, where his talent lies in the union of romantic imagination with a practical view of life. There is sometimes falsetto in the imagination, but it gratifies a liking for falsetto in many readers. Translated, his novels have been read almost as much in English as in French, and among the best liked are L'idée de Jean Tetrol, Jean Tetrol's Idea, 
La Revanche de Joseph Noisel, Joseph Noisel's Revenge, Le Docteur Ramon. If they refuse Cheboulier a place among great writers, at least the critics always respect his cleverness and recognize the range of his information regarding the art, literature, politics, and history of different lands. The prime quality of his work is interest. His remarkable inventiveness shows, in one unusual situation after another, without repetition and with always fresh stimulus. His kinship with Georges Sand's romantic spirit was felt at once, and his style has always remained essentially unchanged. But that his earlier emotional spontaneity has grown with maturity to a more conventional spirit may be seen by comparing the two ends of his work. In Le Comte Castia, we have the persecution of a beautiful young daughter by a Russian nobleman. He forces her to hide her sex and personate the son he has lost, and subjects her to many terrors until she is rescued by his chivalrous young secretary, who in time discovers her secret and marries her. But first, numberless adventures and scenes of passion. In Le Roi Epepi, King Epepi, 1895, there is no profound emotion. It is the cleverly cynical account of the rescue by a worldly old uncle of a romantic and short-sighted nephew. The young man, infatuated by an adventuress, insists upon marrying her. The uncle, ingeniously, without compromising himself, leads the lady to believe that he himself is in love with her. Naturally, she prefers proprietor to heir, and throws over the latter only to find herself deceived. Perhaps the best way to indicate Cherboulier's place in French literature is by comparison with the English Trollope. Both create interest. Both have a swift, firm style, with sometimes almost too facile a rush. But while Trollope draws ordinary men and women who talk in ordinary fashion, Cherboulier invents brilliant-minded people who shower us with epigram. They shoulder too much of their creator's erudition and are too clever to be quite natural. The Silent Duel by Victor Cheboulier From Samuel Brohl and Company Madame de Lorcy ushered Samuel into the salon where he had scarcely set foot when he descried an old woman lounging on a cosseuse fanning herself as she chatted with Abbé Miolens. He remained motionless, his eyes fixed, scarcely breathing, cold as marble. It seemed to him that the four walls of the salon swayed from right to left and left to right, and that the floor was sliding from under his feet like the deck of a pitching vessel. The previous day, Antoinette once departed, Madame de Lorcy had resumed her attack on Princess Gulof, and the princess had ended by consenting to delay her departure, to dine with the adventurer of the green eyes, and to subject him to a close scrutiny. 
There she was. Yes, it was indeed she. The first impulse of Samuel Brawl was to regain the door as speedily as possible, but he did nothing of the kind. He looked at Madame de Lorcy. She herself was regarding him with astonishment. She wondered what could suddenly have overcome him. She could find no explanation for the bewilderment apparent in his countenance. It is a mere chance, he thought at last. She has not intentionally drawn me into a snare. This thought was productive of a sort of half-relief. Eh bien, what is it? she asked. Has my poor salon still the misfortune to be hurtful to you? He pointed to a jardinier, saying, you are fond of hyacinths and tuberoses. Their perfume overpowered me for a moment. I fear you think me very effeminate. She replied in a caressing voice, I take you for a most worthy man who has terrible nerves, but you know by experience that, if you have weaknesses, I have salts. Will you have my smelling bottle? You are a thousand times too good, he rejoined and bravely marched forward to face the danger. It is a well-known fact that dangers in a silken robe are the most formidable of all. Madame de Lorcy presented him to the princess, who raised her chin to examine him with her little glittering eyes. It seemed to him that those grey orbs directed at him were two balls which struck him in the heart, he quivered from head to foot, and asked himself confusedly whether he were dead or living. He soon perceived that he was still living. The princess had remained impassable. Not a muscle of her face had moved. She ended by bestowing upon Samuel a smile which was almost gracious, and addressing to him some insignificant words which he only half understood but which seemed to him exquisite, delicious. He fancied that she was saying to him, You have a chance. You were born lucky. My sight has been impaired for some years, and I do not recognize you. Bless your star. You are saved. He experienced such a transport of joy that he could have flung his arms about the neck of Abbe Miolens, who came up to him with extended hand, saying, "'What have you been thinking about, my dear Count? Since we last met, a very great event has been accomplished. What woman wishes, God wishes. But, after all, my own humble efforts were not without avail, and I am proud of it.' Madame de Lorcy requested Count Lorinsky to offer his arm to Princess Gulov and lead her out to dinner. He mechanically complied, but he had not the strength to utter a syllable as he conducted the princess to table. She herself said nothing. She seemed wholly busied in arranging with her unoccupied hand a lock of her grey hair, which had strayed too far over her forehead. He looked fixedly at this short, plump hand, which one day, in a fit of jealous fury, had administered to him two smart blows. His cheeks recognized it. During dinner, the princess was very gay. She paid more attention to Abbe Miolens than to Count Larinsky. 
she took pleasure in teasing the good priest, in endeavouring to shock him a little. It was not easy to shock him. To his natural easy good nature he united an innate respect for grandeurs and for princesses. She did not neglect so good an opportunity to air her monkey development theories. He merrily flung back the ball. He declared that he should prefer to be a fallen angel rather than a perfected monkey, that in his estimation a parvenu made a much sorrier figure in the world than the descendant of an old family of ruined nobility. She replied that she was more democratic than he, it is pleasant to me, said she, to think that I am a progressive ape who has a wide future before him, and who, by taking proper pains, may hope to attain new advancement. While they were thus chatting, Samuel Brawl was striving with all his might to recover from the terrible blow he had received he noted with keen satisfaction that the eyesight of the princess was considerably impaired, that the microscopic studies for which she had always had a taste had resulted in rendering her somewhat near-sighted, that she was obliged to look out carefully to find her way among her wine-glasses. She has not seen me for six years, thought he, and I have become a different man. I have undergone a complete metamorphosis. I have difficulty sometimes in recognizing myself. Formerly my face was close-shaven. Now I have let my entire beard grow. My voice, my accent, the poise of my head, my manners, the expression of my countenance, all are changed. Poland has entered into my blood. I am Samuel no longer. I am Lorinsky. He blessed the microscope, which enfeebled the sight of old women. He blessed Count Abel Lorinsky, who had made of him his twin brother. Before the end of the repast, he had recovered all his assurance, all his aplomb, he began to take part in the conversation. He recounted in a sorrowful tone a sorrowful little story. He retailed sundry playful anecdotes with a melancholy grace and sprightliness. He expressed the most chivalrous sentiments, shaking his lion's mane. He spoke of the prisoner at the Vatican with tears in his voice. It were impossible to be a more thorough Lorinsky. The princess manifested, in listening to him, an astonished curiosity. She concluded by saying to him, "'Count, I admire you, but I believe only in physiology, and you are a little too much of a pole for me.' After they had left the table and repaired to the salon, several callers dropped in. It was like a deliverance to Samuel." If the society was not numerous enough for him to lose himself in it, at least it served him as a shield. He held it for a certainty that the princess had not recognized him, yet he did not cease feeling in her presence unutterably ill at ease. This Kalmuk visage of hers recalled to him all the miseries, the shame, the hard-grinding slavery of his youth, he could not look at her without feeling his brow burn, as though it were being seared with a hot iron. 
he entered into conversation with a supercilious haughty and pedantic counsellor at law whose interminable monologues distilled ennui this fine speaker seemed charming to samuel who found in him wit knowledge scholarship and taste he possessed the in his eyes meritorious quality of not knowing samuel brawl for samuel had come to divide the human race into two categories the first comprehended those well-to-do thriving people who did not know a certain brawl he placed in the second old women who did know him he interrogated the counsellor with deference he hung upon his words he smiled with an air of approbation at all the absurdities which escaped him he would have been willing to have his discourse last three hours by the watch if this charming bore had shown symptoms of escaping him he would have held him back by the button suddenly he heard a harsh voice saying to madame de lorcy where is count lorinsky bring him to me i want to have a discussion with him he could not do otherwise than comply he quitted his counsellor with regret went over and took a seat in the armchair that madame de lorcy drew up for him at the side of the princess and which had for him the effect of a stool of repentance madame de lorcy moved away and he was left tete-a-tete with princess gulov who said to him i have been told that congratulations are due you and i must make them at once although we are enemies by what right are we enemies princess he asked with a slightly troubled feeling which quickly passed away as she answered i am a russian and you are a pole but we shall have no time for fighting i leave for london to-morrow morning at seven o'clock he was on the point of casting himself at her feet and tenderly kissing her two hands in testimony of his gratitude to-morrow at seven o'clock he mentally ejaculated i have slandered her she has some good in her when i say that i am a russian resumed the princess it is merely a formal speech love of country is a prejudice an idea which has had its day which had sense in the times of epaminondas or of theseus but which has it no longer we live in the age of the telegraph the locomotive and i know of nothing more absurd now than a frontier or more ridiculous than a patriot rumor says that you fought like a hero in the insurrection of eighteen sixty three that you gave proof of incomparable prowess and that you killed with your own hand ten cossacks what harm had they done you those poor cossacks do they not sometimes haunt your dreams can you think of your victims without disquietude and without remorse he replied in a dry haughty tone i really do not know princess how many cossacks i have killed but i do know that there are some subjects on which i do not love to expatiate you are right i should not comprehend you don quixote did not do sancho the honour to explain himself to him every day 
ah i beg of you let us talk a little of the man monkey he observed in a rather more pliant tone than he had at first assumed that is a question which has the advantage of being neither russian nor polish you will not succeed that way in throwing me off the track i mean to tell you all the evil i think of you no matter how it may incense you you uttered at table theories which displeased me you are not only a polish patriot you are an idealist a true disciple of plato and you do not know how i have always detested this man in all these sixty years that i have been in this world i have seen nothing but selfishness and grasping after self-gratification twice during dinner you spoke of an ideal world what is an ideal world where is it situated you speak of it as of a house whose inhabitants you are well acquainted with whose key is in your pocket can you show me the key i promise not to steal it from you o oh, poet for you are quite as much of a poet as of a pole which is not saying much nothing remains but to hang me he interposed smilingly no i shall not hang you opinions are free and there is room enough in the world for all even idealists besides if you were to be hanged it would bring to the verge of despair a charming girl who adores you who was created expressly for you and whom you will shortly marry when will the ceremony take place if i dared hope that you would do me the honour of being present princess i should postpone it until your return from england you are too amiable but i could not on any consideration retard the happiness of mademoiselle moriaz there my dear count i congratulate you sincerely i had the pleasure to meet here the future countess lorinsky she is adorable it is an exquisite nature hers a true poet's wife she must have brains discernment she has chosen you that says everything as to her fortune i dare not ask you if she has any you would turn away from me in disgust do idealists trouble their heads with such vile questions she leaned toward him and fanning herself excitedly added these poor idealists they have one misfortune and what is that princess they dream with open eyes and the awakening is sometimes disagreeable ah my dear count lorinsky this that and the other etc thus endeth the adventure then stretching out her neck until her face was close to his she darted at him a venomous viper-like look and in a voice that seemed to cut into his tympanum like a sharp-toothed saw she hissed samuel brawl the man with the green eyes sooner or later the mountains must meet it seemed to him that the candelabra on the mantelpiece darted out jets of flame whose green blue and rose-coloured tongues ascended to the ceiling and it appeared to him as though his heart was beating as noisily as a clock pendulum and that every one would turn to inquire whence came the noise 
but every one was occupied no one turned round no one suspected that there was a man present on whom a thunderbolt had just fallen the man passed his hand over his brow which was covered with a cold sweat then dispelling by an effort of will the cloud that veiled his eyes he in turn leaned toward the princess and with quivering lip and evil sardonic glance said to her in a low voice princess i have a slight acquaintance with this samuel brol of whom you speak he is not a man who will allow himself to be strangled without a great deal of outcry you are not much in the habit of writing nevertheless he received from you two letters which he copied placing the originals in safety if ever he sees the necessity of appearing in a court of justice these two letters can be made to create quite a sensation and unquestionably they will be the delight of all the petty journals of paris thereupon he made a profound bow respectfully took leave of madame de lorcy and retired followed by abbe miolens who inflicted a real torture by insisting on accompanying him to the station samuel brawl gives up the play by victor cherboulier from samuel brawl and company the gate opened and admitted Samuel Brawl, who had a smile on his lips. His first words were, "'And your umbrella, you have forgotten it.' Mademoiselle de Moriaz replied, "'Do you not see that there is no sunshine?' And she remained leaning against the apple tree. He uplifted his hand to show her the blue sky. He let it fall again. He looked at Antoinette, and he was afraid." He guessed immediately that she knew all. At once he grew audacious. "'I spent a dull day yesterday,' said he. "'Madame de Lorcy invited me to dine with a crazy woman, but the night made up for it. I saw Engadine in my dreams, the firs, the alpine pines, the emerald lakes, and a red hood.' I too dreamed last night. I dreamed that the bracelet you gave me belonged to the crazy woman of whom you speak, and that she had her name engraved on it. She threw him the bracelet. He picked it up, examined it, turned and returned it in his trembling fingers. She grew impatient. Look at the place that has been forced open. Don't you know how to read? He read and became stupefied. Who would have believed that this trinket that he had found among his father's old traps had come to him from Princess Gulov, that it was the price she had paid for Samuel Brol's ignominy and shame? Samuel was a fatalist. He felt that his star had set, that fate had conspired to ruin his hopes, that he was found guilty and condemned. His heart grew heavy within him. "'Can you tell me what I ought to think of a certain Samuel Brol?' she asked. That name, pronounced by her, fell on him like a mass of lead. He never would have believed that there could be so much weight in a human word. He trembled under the blow. Then he struck his brow with his clenched hand and replied, "'Samuel Brol is a man as worthy of your pity as he is of mine.' 
if you knew all that he has suffered all that he has dared you could not help deeply pitying and admiring him listen to me samuel brol is an unfortunate man or a wretch she interrupted in a terrible voice she was seized by a fit of nervous laughter she cried out madame brol i will not be called madame brol ah that poor countess lorinsky he had a spasm of rage that would have terrified her had she conjectured what agitated him he raised his head crossed his arms on his breast and said with a bitter smile it was not the man that you loved it was the count she replied the man whom i loved never lied yes i lied he cried gasping for breath i drank that cup of shame without remorse or disgust i lied because i loved you madly i lied because you were dearer to me than my honour i lied because i despaired of touching your heart and any road seemed good that led to you why did i meet you why could i not see you without recognizing in you the dream of my whole life happiness had passed me by it was about to take flight i caught it in a trap i lied who would not lie to be loved by you samuel brol had never looked so handsome despair and passion kindled a sombre flame in his eyes he had the sinister charm of a fiery satan he fixed on antoinette a fascinating glance which said what matter my name my lies and the rest my face is not a mask and i am the man who pleased you he had not the least suspicion of the astonishing facility with which antoinette had taken back the heart that she had given away so easily he did not suspect what miracles can be wrought by contempt in the middle ages people believed in golems figures in clay of an entrancing beauty which had all the appearance of life under a lock of hair was written in hebrew characters on their brow the word truth if they chanced to lie the word was obliterated they lost all their charm the clay was no longer anything but clay mademoiselle moriaz divined samuel brol's thought she exclaimed the man i loved was he whose history you related to me he would have liked to kill her so that she should never belong to another behind antoinette not twenty steps distant he descried the curb of a well and grew dizzy at the sight he discovered with despair that he was not made of the stuff for crime he dropped down on his knees in the grass and cried if you will not pardon me nothing remains for me but to die she stood motionless and impassive she repeated between her teeth camille lanchi's phrase i am waiting until this great comedian has finished playing his piece he rose and started to run toward the well she was in front of him and barred the passage but at the same moment she felt two hands clasp her waist and the breath of two lips which sought her lips and which murmured you love me still since you do not want me to die 
she struggled with violence and horror she succeeded by a frantic effort in disengaging herself from his grasp she fled toward the house samuel brawl rushed after her in mad pursuit he was just reaching her when he suddenly stopped he had caught sight of monsieur Langis hurrying from out a thicket where he had been hidden growing uneasy he had approached the orchard through a path concealed by the heavy foliage antoinette out of breath ran to him gasping camille save me from this man and she threw herself into his arms which closed about her with delight he felt her sink she would have fallen had he not supported her at the same instant a menacing voice saluted him with the words monsieur we will meet again to-day if you will he replied antoinette's wild excitement had given place to insensibility she neither saw nor heard her limbs no longer sustained her camille had great difficulty in bringing her to the house she could not ascend the steps of the terrace he was obliged to carry her mademoiselle moisigny saw him and filled the air with her cries she ran forward she lavished her best care on her queen all the time she was busy in bringing her to her senses she was asking camille for explanations to which she did not pay the least attention she interrupted him at every word to exclaim this has been designed and you are at the bottom of the plot i have suspected you you owe antoinette a grudge your wounded vanity has never recovered from her refusal and you are determined to be revenged perhaps you flatter yourself that she will end by loving you she does not love you and she never will love you who are you to dare compare yourself with count lorinsky be silent do i believe in samuel brawl i do not know samuel brawl i venture my head that there is no such person as samuel brawl not much of a venture mademoiselle replied monsieur moriaz who had arrived in the meantime antoinette remained during an hour in a state of mute languor then a violent fever took possession of her when the physician who had been sent for arrived monsieur langis accompanied him into the chamber of the sick girl she was delirious seated upright she kept continually passing her hand over her brow she sought to efface the taint of a kiss she had received one moonlight night and the impression in her hair of the flapping of a bat's wings that had caught in her hood these two things were confounded in her memory from time to time she said where is my portrait give me my portrait it was about ten o'clock when monsieur langis called on samuel brawl who was not astonished to see him appear he had hoped he would come samuel had regained self-possession he was calm and dignified however the tempest through which he had gone had left on his features some vestige of its passage his lips quivered and his beautiful chestnut locks curled like serpents about his temples and gave his head a medusa-like appearance he said to camille where and when our seconds will undertake the arrangement of the rest 
you mistake monsieur the motive of my visit replied monsieur Langis. i am grieved to destroy your illusions but i did not come to arrange a meeting with you do you refuse to give me satisfaction what satisfaction do i owe you you insulted me when and you said the day the place the weapons i leave all to your choice monsieur Langis could not refrain from smiling ah you at last acknowledge that your fainting fit was comedy he rejoined acknowledge on your part replied samuel that you insult persons when you believe that they are not in a state to hear you your courage likes to take the safe side be reasonable replied camille i placed myself at count lorinsky's disposal you cannot require me to fight with a samuel brawl samuel sprang to his feet with fierce bearing and head erect he advanced to the young man who awaited him unflinchingly and whose resolute manner awed him he cast upon him a sinister look turned and reseated himself bit his lips until the blood came then said in a placid voice will you do me the favor of telling me monsieur to what i owe the honor of this visit i came to demand of you a portrait that mademoiselle moriez is desirous of having returned if i refuse to give it up you will doubtless appeal to my delicacy do you doubt it ironically replied camille that proves monsieur that you still believe in count lorinsky that it is to him you speak at this moment you deceive yourself i came to see samuel brol who is a business man and it is a commercial transaction that i intend to hold with him and drawing from his pocket a portemonnaie he added you see i do not come empty-handed samuel settled himself in his armchair half closing his eyes he watched monsieur Langis through his eyelashes a change passed over his features his nose became more crooked and his chin more pointed he no longer resembled a lion he was a fox his lips wore the sugared smile of a usurer one who lays snares for the sons of wealthy families and who scents out every favorable case if at this moment jeremiah brol had seen him from the other world he would have recognized his own flesh and blood he said at last to camille you are a man of understanding monsieur i am ready to listen to you i am very glad of it and to speak frankly i had no doubts about it i knew you to be very intelligent very much disposed to make the best of an unpleasant conjuncture ah spare my modesty i thank you for your excellent opinion of me i should warn you that i am accused of being greedy after gain you will leave some of the feathers from your wings between my fingers for a reply monsieur Langis significantly patted the portemonnaie which he held in his hand and which was literally stuffed with bank-notes immediately samuel took from a locked drawer a casket and proceeded to open it this is a very precious gem he said the medallion is gold and the work on the miniature is exquisite it is a masterpiece the color equals the design the mouth is marvelously rendered 
Mengs or Leotard could not have done better. At what do you value this work of art? You are more of a connoisseur than I. I will leave it to your own valuation. I will let you have the trinket for five thousand francs. It is almost nothing. Camille began to draw out the five thousand francs from his portemonnaie. How prompt you are, remarked Samuel. The portrait has not only a value as a work of art. I am sure you attach a sentimental value to it, for I suspect you of being over head and ears in love with the original. I find you too greedy, replied Camille, casting on him a crushing glance. Do not be angry. I am accustomed to exercise methodical precision in business affairs. My father always sold at a fixed price, and I, too, never lower my charges. You will readily understand that what is worth five thousand francs to a friend is worth double to a lover. The gem is worth ten thousand francs. You can take it or leave it. I will take it, replied Monsieur Longis. Since we agree, continued Samuel, I possess still other articles which might suit you. Why do you think of selling me your clothing? Let us come to an understanding. I have other articles of the same lot. And he brought from a closet the red hood, which he spread out on the table. Here is an article of clothing, to use your own words, that may be of interest to you. Its color is beautiful. If you saw it in the sunshine, it would dazzle you. I grant that the stuff is common, it is very ordinary cashmere, but if you deign to examine it closely, you will be struck by the peculiar perfume that it exhales. The Italians call it l'odore feminino. And what is your rate of charge for the odore feminino? I will be moderate. I will let you have this article and its perfume for five thousand francs. It is actually giving it away assuredly we will say ten and five that makes fifteen thousand one moment you can pay for all together i have other things to offer you one would say that the floor burned your feet and that you could not endure being in this room i allow that i long to leave this what shall i say this shop lair or den you are young, monsieur. It never does to hurry. Haste causes us acts of forgetfulness which we afterward regret. You would be very sorry not to take away with you these two scraps of paper. At these words he drew from his notebook two letters which he unfolded. Is there much more? demanded Camille. I fear that I shall become short of funds and be obliged to go back for more. Ah, these two letters, I will not part with them, for a trifle, the second especially. It is only twelve lines in length, but what pretty English handwriting. Only see, and the style is loving and tender. I will add that it is signed. Ah, monsieur, Mademoiselle Moriens will be charmed to see these scrolls again. Under what obligations will she be to you? You will make the most of it. You will tell her that you wrested them from me, your dagger at my throat, that you terrified me. With what a gracious smile she will reward your heroism. 
according to my opinion that smile is as well worth ten thousand francs as the medallion the two gems are of equal value if you want more it makes no difference no monsieur i have told you i have only one price at this rate it is twenty-five thousand francs that i owe you you have nothing more to sell me alas that is all will you swear it what monsieur you admit then that samuel brol has a word of honour that when he has sworn he can be believed you are right i am still very young that is all then i swear to you affirmed samuel sighing my shop is poorly stocked i had commenced laying in a supply but an unfortunate accident deranged my little business bah be consoled replied monsieur langis you will find another opportunity a genius of such lofty flights as yours is never at a loss you have been unfortunate some day fortune will compensate you for the wrongs she has done you and the world will accord justice to your fine talents speaking thus he laid on the table twenty-five notes of a thousand francs each he counted them samuel counted them after him and at once delivered to him the medallion the hood and the two letters camille rose to leave monsieur brol he said from the first day i saw you i formed the highest opinion of your character the reality surpasses my expectations i am charmed to have made your acquaintance and i venture to hope that you are not sorry to have made mine however i shall not say au revoir who knows replied samuel suddenly changing his countenance and attitude and he added if you are fond of being astonished monsieur will you remain still another instant in this den he rolled and twisted the twenty-five one thousand franc notes into lamp lighters then with a grand gesture a la poniatowski he approached the candle held them in the flame until they blazed and then threw them on the hearth where they were soon consumed turning toward monsieur langis he cried will you now do me the honour of fighting with me after such a noble act as that i can refuse you nothing returned camille i will do you that signal honour just what i desire replied samuel i am the offended i have the choice of arms and in showing monsieur langis out he said i will not conceal from you that i have frequented the shooting galleries and that i am a first-class pistol shot camille bowed and went out the next day in a lucid interval mademoiselle moriaz saw at the foot of her bed a medallion laid on a red hood from that moment the physician announced an improvement in her symptoms end of section twelve